This is the Josh Hammer Show. I'm getting married this week. That is the big update in my life. That has been the big news in my life for the past year. I got engaged almost a year ago now. It was the third night of Hanukkah last year. It was December 20th. And almost a year later to the day, we are formally tying the knot. On the one hand, it's really hard to believe. I'm 34 years old, and this is my first and, God willing, will be my last marriage. On the other hand, it's, it's been a year. It's been a lot of planning, and here we are. And, and what a week it has already been. We've had a number of events leading up to it, the family flying in from out of town. My bride's family is mostly from Israel. That was kind of a huge question lingering in the background is who's going to be able to make it? The war, of course, threw everything up in the air. And at the end of the day, roughly 20 folks from her family have managed to fly in from a country that is in the middle of a hot war. So that is no small miracle in and of itself. But man, just all sorts of thoughts and emotions. It's a a time for prayer, for contemplation, for thinking about who I am and most importantly, who we are. And that is the important distinction to make. The polls show that millennials, Gen Z, the younger folks are getting married later, if at all. The percentage of men and women in their 40s who have never been married is higher than ever. Fertility rates, of course, are going down. We, we have raised solipsistic generations, those who only think of me and I in the first person singular. Those who do not think about we, about a couple, about a family about something more communal, about something more meaningful than just I. That is a total change of how one must approach his or her life. Going forward, it is not about just I, Josh Hammer. It is about us, Josh and Sheer Hammer. That is a fundamental distinction that says a lot. It is the conservative way to approach life in general. Those of you who have been listening to this show for a while know that I am very opposed to absolute individualism in this me, 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 I, I, I mentality that fails to consider the community, the family, the church, the synagogue, the nation— the common good, ultimately, of course, God himself. So it's only a personal journey, but it is only one small step, I think, in trying to better live that which I have believed and indeed preached for years now, which is trying to think of and approach life through that lens. I love my bride very, very much. She is beautiful inside and out, truly it's a little bit of a cliche line to say, but it is, of course, true. And she, she really does complete me. And we, we have had a, a wonderful journey now. We're going to get married just under two years after our first date. 
And just some words of wisdom for those folks out there, I think, who are on the dating market. Maybe you're exploring your options. Maybe you're starting to enter the dating market. You know, I, I, I heard my former boss, Ben Shapiro, years ago on his own show talk about what you should look for in a spouse. And it was a monologue that always stuck with me. This, frankly, really is what Judaism says in general, actually, about dating, but he put it quite eloquently. That is that this, this notion, this Hallmark card notion, this Disney movie Cinderella notion, that you see someone and split seconds later, you're like, oh my God, she's the one or he's the one. I knew it from the moment I met you. When can I propose? That's not how it works. Now, did I know that my bride was special very early on? Yeah, you're, of course I did. Of course I did. I, I knew by date three at the latest that this was exceedingly special and a month and a half, two months in at the absolute latest that she was the one. So I don't want to downplay that sentiment. But what Ben talked about in the monologue, the Jewish approach to dating and to marriage in general, is that none of that actually really matters. Whether you are head over heels on the very first date, that's not what you should be looking for. You have to find someone who shares your morals, your values, your scruples, your way of life, and your approach to the world at large. And, you know, you, you can fill in the blanks from there. That's going to have religious ramifications. It's going to have political ramifications. Just approach to how you raise the children. How many kids do you want? I mean, I mean, basic bedrock value questions. My collective experience in the dating market up and until this time only validates that sentiment. That really is what you should be looking for. And thank God, Baruch Hashem, as we say, that is what I have been able to find in my life partner, Sheer. And we are deeply, deeply excited for the journey ahead. I've been taking some classes with a local rabbi here in, in South Florida. So in, in Hebrew, the word for bride is kala, and the word for husband is chatan, or, or, or the word for groom is chatan, I should say. And I have been taking what they call chatan classes with a, with a wonderful rabbi here. I mean, he puts me to shame. He's the same age as me, 34 years old. He already has seven kids. God bless him. A lot of our lessons, you know, it's funny. I think a lot of non-Jews or, or, or less observant Jews think about observant religious Jews and the lessons that you learn, and they think it's about all these rules and the commandments and observing the Sabbath and keeping a kosher home. And, and all that is certainly true. That is what you should do as a couple if you want to actually uphold the covenant and fulfill your obligation in this nation, in this peoplehood going back thousands of years. But I thought it was really interesting that in my Chatan classes, the rabbi didn't focus on any of that. He focused on being a mensch in his own words. That was really the crux of our lessons over the past few months. 
how to be a good person, how to be an upstanding individual, and above all, to think of this union and think of your life in general through the prism, not of I, not of me, 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 not what is best for me, not what is best for my bottom line, not what is best for my bank account, for my interests, my this, my that, but what is best for us, what is best for our interests. That requires sacrifice, that requires teamwork, that requires hashing out difficult topics, thorny subjects, and all of the above. I know that I am deeply excited to begin this new chapter of my life. My kala, my bride, certainly is as well here. It's been a whirlwind week, guys. Haven't talked about it a ton on the air, but it's been occupying a lot of my thoughts over the past half year or so, at least a really full year, as you can probably imagine. Wish us luck. Wish us luck. And of course, wish us, if, if you would, wish us a Mazel Tov as well. We are deeply excited and we are so, so grateful for all of our friends and family who have been with us along the way and are going to be supporting us on this next step of our very important life journey. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. There was a moment during yesterday's congressional hearing on anti-Semitism when I was asked if a call for the genocide of Jewish people on our campus would violate our policies. In that moment, I was focused on our university's longstanding policies aligned with the US Constitution, which say that speech alone is not punishable. Bye-bye, Liz McGill. Liz McGill is dunzo at the University of Pennsylvania after her disgraceful congressional testimony, which we discussed at length on this show last week, where she, alongside Claudine Gay of Harvard and Sally Kornbluth of MIT, repeatedly, repeatedly refused to unequivocally condemn calls for genocide, yes, literal genocide of Jewish students on her campus, the Ivy League campus of the University of Pennsylvania. It's really funny. If you look at this video or even just listen to the audio, a snippet of which we just played for you, it sounds a lot like a hostage video. I mean, this does not sound like someone who was enthusiastic about backtracking to this extent. 
And backtrack, she did. You know, why didn't Liz McGill actually say that when she was, oh, I don't know, under oath when Elise Stefanik of New York State and other Republicans and Democrats alike were questioning those three presidents rather intensely? Penn is not the only university to backtrack a little bit. Harvard has done much the exact same thing. In the days following that testimony, Harvard put out various statements as well. Claudine Gay herself put out some some gobbledygook about how she probably should have performed a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, understatement of the century, girl. Should have performed a heck of a lot better. Should have had the moral fortitude to actually condemn calls for genocide against the most genocided people of all time on your purportedly prestigious university campus. Now, Harvard had an opportunity to get rid of Claudine Gay the same way that UPenn got rid, got rid of Liz McGill. They had an emergency board meeting at Harvard, which happened as a result of both her testimony and recently resurfaced allegations of plagiarism, plagiarism against Claudine Gay. She apparently inadequately cited many, many, many papers over the years. She committed plagiarism according to Harvard's own internal code of conduct. Claudine Gay herself, of course, is a perfect exemplar for everything that is wrong in higher education. I know from someone who went to graduate school with Claudine Gay at Harvard, a friend of mine was classmates in the PhD program with her. They were doctoral students together. He cannot remember a single notable accomplishment that Claudine Gay ever had when she was in grad school. And to this day, despite being the president of maybe the single most famous university in the world, Claudine Gay has, one, never even published a book at all, and two, even on scholarly articles, has been woefully underpublished compared to her peers. That's a fancy way of saying that she is just ridiculously underqualified for the job. Well, why do you think that she got that job in the first place? Well, Harvard's board essentially told us when they were in the search process for it, making it extraordinarily clear that they were looking for someone who fit certain racial gender boxes. If this sounds familiar, that's because it is familiar. It is the exact same gambit, the same stunt that Joe Biden pulled after Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer announced his retirement in January 2022. That process ultimately got us Katanji Brown-Jackson, who, like Claudine Gay, is also a black woman. Ultimately, if you want to fix higher education, and it is not even obvious to me that it is worth trying to fix. It really is not. In its current state, the, the sheer amount of manpower, of willpower, of, of money, of personnel decisions to hire and fire people, to recapture these, these godforsaken institutions, the, the sheer effort genuinely actually might not be worth it. it. It actually might be better to just starve these institutions of every penny that they are worth. But assuming for the sake of argument that we actually want to commence on this slow plotting process to actually turn around the state of America's leading universities, 
and the Liz McGill scalp is definitely a nice scalp to take. No doubt about that. It is symbolic of nothing else, but it is a nice scalp. The very first step in this broader recapture of higher education would be to unequivocally denounce the very lens through which Ketanji Brown-Jackson became a Supreme Court justice and Claudine Gay became president of Harvard, which is this equity, woke, intersectional lens that looks at some people and some groups differently than others simply on account of the fact that they have a different skin color, they're XY chromosomes or XX chromosomes, they're from a certain nation, they're a certain religion, they're this, they're that. If higher education in America ever, ever wants to actually be a force for good again, not a force for prestige for prestige's sake, not a force for shepherding these students into hoity-toity hedge funds that make a lot of money doing not a lot of work, if they actually want to be a generational, positive, impactful force for good, for achieving good things and contributing to the public good of the country, the ostensible reason for which was the establishment of these universities and their favorable tax treatment in the very first place. The very first step is to choose meritocracy, merit, worth, and human equality. The very equality found right there in the Declaration of Independence reaffirmed by the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th through 15th Amendments, the Civil Rights Act in 1964, and on and on. That continues to be the great divide in this country. We saw it play out this past summer in the affirmative action case at the Supreme Court, the Students for Fair Admissions case. Ironically, who were they suing? Harvard. They were suing Harvard and the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And it was in that case that you saw this dueling conception of the American regime, you saw that play out in real time. Justice Clarence Thomas, in his concurring opinion, stood for the proposition that I just enunciated. Actual equality. Meritocracy. Choose folks who are good because they are good and will conduce to the good. On the other hand, you have the Katanji Brown-Jackson dissenting opinion... Naturally, Katanji Brown-Jackson, who was only on the court in the first place because of her race and sex, chose to write a PN, a dissent in that case, to a worldview predicated upon a racial, sex-based, and so forth lens. There is no road through which higher education, Harvard, Penn, MIT, all these institutions can ever redeem themselves let alone actually eradicate the world's oldest hatred on their campus or at least quell it down, that is anti-Semitism. There's no road through which they can do this other than by choosing the Clarence Thomas conception of the American regime and rejecting the Katanji Brown-Jackson version. Thank you. 
VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The war in Gaza has been heating up. The fighting is all over. It is primarily right now in Khan Yunus, which is the Hamas stronghold in southern Gaza. But there is still a lot of fighting in Gaza City, which is where Al-Shifa Hospital is, the Hamas command and control center. There's a lot of fighting there in northern Gaza as well. This past Wednesday was a, was a particularly deadly day in the war. You had nine Zahal IDF soldiers, tragically, who... Who, who died in what was essentially a booby-trapped courtyard there. We pray that their lives are not taken in vain and that their blood be avenged. But the war continues. And the war continues such that we are starting to see some divides that have been thus far somewhat latent, somewhat hidden. We have started to see some of these divides really just burst out into the open. I'm talking, of course about the Biden-Harris administration. So it was at the COP28 climate change junket, this outrageously hypocritical conference in Dubai that John Kerry, the limousine liberal dolt from Massachusetts, he jet set in for. Kamala Harris also flew in for it. She took Air Force Two in for this conference. And she used that time sitting there in a prominent city in the Arab world, sitting in Dubai. She used that time to criticize Israel's military policies in Gaza, to say that all these images are, are just totally devastating, that Israel is doing way too much harm, too much civilian carnage, this, that. And it wasn't that long after that. It was his past week, ironically, right around the time that he hosted the White House Hanukkah party, that Joe Biden finally decided to let his anti-Netanyahu sentiments and frankly, just Israel skeptical sentiments, burst out into the open. He said that he did not approve of Israel's, quote, indiscriminate bombing campaign in Gaza. There are two possibilities as to Joe Biden saying that. The first is that he is actually just a total moron. Like someone who has no idea of what, of what is happening on the ground. He's, just, he's a moron. He's not paying attention. He's senile. He's this. He's that. What Israel is doing in Gaza is not indiscriminate. Israel has nuclear weapons, for God's sake. If they wanted to wipe Gaza quite literally off the face of the earth, they could have done that on October 8th the day after the pogrom. That would be indiscriminate bombing. That would be the Hiroshima, Nagasaki, you know, J. Robert Oppenheimer-style solution. And note that no one even proposed this as a possibility. I mean, it it was never even discussed, despite this being the bloodiest day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. It was never discussed, obviously. But that would have been indiscriminate bombing. What Israel is doing is brutal, Fallujah, Iraq-style urban 
door to door, courtyard to courtyard, building to building, tunnel to tunnel, urban warfare, urban combat the likes of which the United States itself engaged in for a long, long time during the David Petraeus-led counterinsurgency there in Iraq. Joe Biden should be very familiar with it because he was a very outspoken senator from Delaware during those years. He probably just doesn't remember. He hasn't had his pudding or something like that. The other thing that is going on here, though, when Joe Biden talks about or more accurately, when his handlers force-feed him a line to cavil about Israel's quote-unquote indiscriminate bombing campaign. The other thing is that not only is he just senile and a moron, he is both of those things, but he is engaged in performative virtue signaling for a domestic political audience. As counterintuitive as it may seem, Joe Biden's hectoring of Bibi Netanyahu and Israel, which has really, really ratcheted up over the past month and a half or so. He was good for, call it two to three weeks. Everyone in the right mind knew it was going to turn. It was only a matter of when. It's been happening for at least a month and a half now, and we've seemed to have reached something of a fever pitch. What he is doing here is, even though he is speaking to a foreign leader— that's Netanyahu. Even though, he, even though he is speaking to a foreign country, that is Israel. Joe Biden is actually speaking in reality, not to a foreign audience, but to a domestic audience. He is speaking to his own Democratic Party coalition. He is speaking to his own progressive, woke, grassroots. He is looking at polls just like you and I. So this past week, the Wall Street Journal published really just a a remarkable poll where they surveyed 1,500 registered voters in America and whether they sympathize more with the Israelis or the Palestinians in the conflict or do you sympathize with with both. Americans as a whole, 42% with Israel, 12% with the Palestinians, 33 sympathize with both. Independents are also very pro-Israel, which is encouraging. 35 with Israel, 11 with the Palestinians, 34 with both. Republicans overwhelmingly side with Israel. 69% with Israel, 2%, 2 with the Palestinians, 17 with both. But here's the interesting part. The Democrats, according to this Wall Street Journal survey... 17% side more with the Israelis. 24% side more with the Palestinians. 48% with both. That is what Joe Biden is looking at. Those are the kind of polls that he is looking at when he is saying things like chastising Netanyahu and the IDF for a quote-unquote indiscriminate bombing campaign in Gaza City and Khan Yunus. He is looking at swing state polls that show him losing to Donald Trump, if Trump is indeed the nominee, they show him losing it to Donald Trump by 10 points in Michigan, a state that Biden won in 2020, that Trump squeaked out by the, by the narrowest margin in 2016, but a state that is Michigan, which is also home to America's largest Muslim population that has a 
viciously, viciously anti-Israel subcomponent there in that state in towns like Dearborn, Hamtramck. As you guys know, I was there and saw it in person when I was shouted down at the University of Michigan just a month ago talking on this very conflict. Biden has a huge problem in the state of Michigan above all. It's not just Michigan. If you look at the Muslim population in the United States in general, and a disgustingly high percentage, by the way, a disgustingly high percentage of American Muslims say that they either have no issue or outright support the Hamas Holocaust of October 7th. I saw one poll indicating it was in the 50 to 60% range. Yes, you heard that right. 50 to 60% of American Muslims, according to at least one post-October 7th poll, at minimum had no issue, at maximum outright supported what happened on October 7th. Disgusting stuff. And because of the way that that the United States has increased immigration from the broader Islamic world, something that President Trump, to his credit, tried to tamp down. That was the so-called Muslim ban, which wasn't actually a Muslim ban, but that's what the media called it. Fake news, as Trump accurately referred to it. But prior to that, America gained about one million Muslim immigrants in the 10 years or so prior to the Trump presidency. I think the total Muslim population in America by the year 2050, according to current trajectories, is projected to be 9 million or so. So it's not just Michigan. There are large Muslim populations in Arizona, Minnesota, Georgia, to name just a few states that are either swing states or at least potentially swingy states in a close election year. Biden has a real, real problem when it comes to the anti-Semitic progressives that are currently a huge part of the Democratic Party coalition. He's between something of a rock and a hard place, though, because there obviously are any number of liberal Jews as well who, against what they should believe, against what they should vote for, against what their religion tells them, against against literally everything, (laughs) continue to stubbornly pull the lever for the Democratic Party. Now, there's some anecdotal evidence that that is changing a little bit. Emphasis on anecdotal. The the polls that I have seen are not super propitious, are not super encouraging when it comes to Jews finally waking up politically. But many of us have seen some anecdotal evidence, family members, friends, this, that, who say enough is enough. I'm voting for a Republican next year, no matter what. But most Jews are still Democrats. So it's a really impossible place for the Biden-Harris campaign to be in. To which I, as someone who hopes that they lose next year, to which I say, good. I hope that this impossible situation continues. But it's going to be really interesting to see how this all plays out. The Democratic Party, which really started to make its anti-Israel turn during Barack Obama, who was an anti-Israel ideologue. I mean, Barack Obama was an anti-Western civilization ideologue. The man is out of central casting from the academy he he is out of central casting when it comes to condemning the west condemning america i mean as you guys know he had the pastor damn america all that stuff right so they started their turn under that and now it's really accelerating it is out in the open you have 
not just Tlaib, Omar, Cory Bush, Jamal Bowman, not just those idiots in the House who are, are voting to refuse to condemn Jew hatred. You have dozens of them that are going on record refusing to condemn the world's oldest bigotry. The Democratic Party, the party of Harry Truman, the party of the president who was the first world leader to recognize Israel roughly 11 minutes after Ben-Gurion declared independence in 1948. The Democratic Party is no longer a friend whatsoever of the Jewish people or the Jewish state. On the one hand, it makes me profoundly sad to see these issues become political footballs, especially at a time like this where Israel is literally fighting for its life. On the other hand, the partisan in me can't help but laugh at their very difficult predicament. University of Wisconsin-Madison is cutting DEI programs for salary increases. So the Board of Regents there is voting to cut 43, 43 DEI positions. There's also a freeze currently in place there in University of Wisconsin-Madison on, on increasing DEI positions. So there's a freeze on more DEI. I mean, this is an unambiguous white pill. This is great news. I mean, University of Wisconsin-Madison... This is the heart of the liberal Leviathan. This is the Berkeley of the Midwest. That is one of the most liberal campuses in the country. They have been crazy town USA for decades and decades now, whether it is the LGBT agenda, whether it is abortion on demand without apology, whether it is Gaza and Hamas. These people are just absolutely nutso. So if even here, if even here, the University Board of Regents is talking about a DEI freeze, this means that we actually are making inroads, and that has been the trend for a little while now. The Wall Street Journal had a story over the summer about how corporate America, this is focusing more on corporate America than higher education, but how corporate America was seriously cutting back and indeed actually downsizing many DEI bureaucracies within the corporate structure and, and trimming them down, trimming the fat from the HR departments there. This is great stuff. This is great stuff. Ultimately, to get back to what we were saying earlier in the show here, th this is the fight. I, I mean, this really is ground zero of the fight to reclaim higher education in America if we actually are ever going to reclaim it. The DEI positions, the diversity crats, as Heather McDonald calls them, they have to go. They have to go. And the final lesson to learn here is that as crazy as the University of Wisconsin-Madison is, Recall that Wisconsin itself is a famously purple state. It is one of the swingiest swing states in the country right now. So the Board of Regents is not necessarily comprised with all lefties. That's going to be a more politically heterodox board. That's probably why they're doing this in the first place. And the lesson to take away from that for conservatives is that when you have power, this is the Florida Ron DeSantis model all over again. When you have power and you can implement and wield power to secure tangible goods, do not be hesitant to use it. That is exactly what the Board of Regents here did. Good for them. Huntington Beach 
is sticking it to woke California. This story for you right out of Orange County, California. They have a huge conservative majority there on the Huntington Beach City Council. They're pursuing pride flag bans, voter ID requirements. I mean, apparently there's been a a recent trend, actually, of some discontent, even Texans, some folks from red state America who are actually going back out to California. I don't want to over-exaggerate. The overall trends are still that California is losing citizens. They've literally run out of U-Hauls there. But some folks apparently are so happy with what the town of Huntington Beach is doing that they're moving back. Very interesting. It's a countercultural trend there right under Gavin Newsom's nose. You know, it was an underreported story, but over the past two election cycles, you actually, especially the the last midterms in 2022, you actually did see Republicans make some inroads once again in Orange County. So Orange County, California was once the iconic Republican bastion in California. If you want to go back to John Steinbeck, Grapes of Wrath, you had a lot of Texans, Oklahomans, Settled there in Orange County way back during the Dust Bowl in the 1920s, 1930s. That county voted Republican consistently for 50, 60 years. It wasn't until the, the, the Obama presidency that the trend started to shift just a little bit there. This is a crucial, crucial county. I mean, not that I'm, not that I'm optimistic that California is a state is going to go red anytime soon, but certainly even in these bright blue, culturally insane bastions of wokeism, it is important to have some oases in the woke desert. That is what Huntington Beach is, and good for them. I I just say keep up the good work there. Caitlyn Jenner says trans women aren't real women. I mean, that headline says all you need to know. Uh, Good for Caitlyn Jenner. I mean, look, Caitlyn Jenner, of all people, obviously should know this. Back when Caitlyn Jenner was Bruce Jenner, Bruce Jenner was was an absolutely incredible Olympic athlete. Kind of a fun fact, actually. You know, back when Caitlyn Jenner was, was Bruce Jenner, Bruce Jenner actually went to the same high school as me. I went to a public school in New York State. Bruce Jenner was actually a student there for two years. Kind of crazy. So if anyone should know where so-called trans women, a.k.a. biological men, just like Caitlyn Jenner, if anyone should know the pluses and minuses, the pros and cons of allowing them to compete against biological women, it obviously is Caitlyn Jenner. You know, for years and years, I feel like I've been screaming from the from the hilltops saying that this is such an obvious issue for Republicans to run on all over the country there. The median parent who has children in K through 12, who has seen their children compete in sports all the way from youth soccer and little league t-ball up through varsity soccer, lacrosse, football, baseball, and so forth in high school, they intuit with every fiber of their being that biological men have no business whatsoever competing against biological women. It seems like every month we get some new headline about a biological woman who is physically injured by a biological man, a.k.a. a quote-unquote trans woman in some sort of competition. This is a horrible, horrible trend. I'm not sure what it's going to take. God forbid, does someone have to be killed? I mean, is that literally what it's going to take? Does a biological woman have to be killed by a biological man in a wrestling contest? God forbid. I recall years ago, there was an MMA competition. A biological woman had her skull fractured. I mean, what is it going to take? But anyway, thank God we're not quite there yet. Hopefully, hopefully this trend does pick up steam them. Kid Rock wants Bud Light to thrive again. So uh, these are recent comments that Kid Rock made to Tucker Carlson. He said, quote, I don't think the punishment that they've been getting fits the crime. He said that he thinks that they have learned their lesson. 
So here is the dirty little secret going on here. I, I think that, that this is nuts, just to make my stance on this very, very clear. I think that Kid Rock is dead wrong. Here is what is actually going on here. UFC, the MMA league, has a major deal with InBev and Iser Bush, and by extension, Bud Light. That is literally all this is about, is that Dana White and UFC are making oodles of cash from Bud Light. And as you probably saw a few weeks ago, I'm not an MMA guy, to be clear. I don't follow UFC at all. I happen to like boxing. I don't really care for UFC. But there was that huge UFC fight a few weeks ago where Dana White hosted Donald Trump, Tucker Carlson, and Kid Rock. Have you noticed that Trump world, that MAGA world, has always been very soft on the Bud Light issue going back to the Dylan Mulvaney fiasco in April? Whether it was Trump Sr. or even Don Jr.? You remember when Don Jr., way back in April, was telling conservatives to call off the attack dogs? He was like, who cares? Whatever, no big deal. Now Kid Rock's doing the exact same thing here. Consider for a second the possibility that these people do not have principles and are literally, literally doing it as part of their big, grand griftapalooza. It's all about the Benjamins, baby, to paraphrase Ilan Omar. That is certainly what it is about for Kid Rock here. I, for one, think it is shameful. Finally, embracing inclusivity in the workplace this holiday season. This from a Connecticut business trade group that bills itself as Connecticut's largest business organization. It's called CBIA. They're encouraging Connecticut businesses to think of the term inclusive more inclusively. They're encouraging all businesses there in the state of Connecticut to emphasize inclusivity in their themes. Look, I mean, if you are trying to do an even worse job than I thought was possible in trying to repel businesses away from your blue state that has been hemorrhaging citizens for years, if not decades, then keep this up. I I can't think of anything more likely to tell someone in the C-suite to just go relocate his business to Tennessee, Texas, Florida, Georgia, Arizona, whatever, than stuff like this. How If you're trying to get people to move there, if you're trying to attract business leaders, trying to attract capital, human capital, if you're trying to attract all that, wouldn't it make a heck of a lot more sense to talk about your favorable regulatory environment, talk about your tax rates, talk about this, that? Don't talk about this. 